And as we do begin this new month, this month of October, having been away for four weeks, um, I thought it might be good to open up the class this morning, not only because we do it on a regular basis, the first Sunday of the month, or at least most of the first Sundays of the month, uh, for open form, for some uh, questions, your input into our class this morning. I thought it might be especially appropriate in the fact that I've not been here for four weeks and visitors have come, maybe the ministry that has been brought to you has sparked some questions or some um, something you'd like to ask of me. Um, I, I, I could well think, though I don't know what it would be, that's the, that's the surprise of it, that four weeks up in Catskill, that maybe Pastor Nichols is going to be approached by somebody and say, you never guess what that guy from Pinebush said to us. Is this true? <laughs> you never guess what he taught. What do you think about this, Pastor Nichols? It's good they'll go to their pastor about it, because he has to live with them. <laughs> I'm here today and not up there. So whenever I left in the wake, that's his so his. his his mess to clean up. <laughs> I don't know if there's any messes here. I hope not. We had some really good men come to minister God's word, and we're just thankful to the Lord for the provision of men like Andrew Boozer and for uh, Kenny Harris and for Amos Jabello and um, for Joe Dunlap that they were able to come and be with uh, be with you and to minister God's word in your midst. And uh, all the things I've heard up to this point has been really encouraging very positive statements, but if it does, if something was said the last four weeks has sparked a question that might be appropriate for edification and uh, studying the Word of God, uh, feel free to raise that this morning. You could say it came out of the message or not, it's up to you, or something that has risen out of your reading, out of your uh, just reading God's Word, or just something out of um, just your own desire to know some aspect of God's truth that might be met. Again, something that would be helpful to others. If you're questioning it, it's probably somebody else is questioning it. So um, I will open the class. And uh, I do have a backup plan in case there are no questions this morning, but I'll give you an opportunity to raise a question. I probably had a couple questions, but I failed to really write them down. Okay. So I have no idea what they were. Oh, okay. Well, that's... that's Thankful that you're telling us. <laughs> Can't help you there. <laughs> Can't help you there now. But if, if it occurs to you, feel free yeah. to raise it. And Mike, did you have something? Yeah, um, I was watching a podcast and by Joel Webin, um, who's. A I'm sorry. What is his name? Uh, Maybe we don't. Webin? Oh, we don't need to know the name actually okay. for the recording. Sorry. Baptist. Okay, you heard a podcast from a Reformed Baptist. Okay, go ahead. Um, and he had a guy on from Answers in Genesis, I guess, and he discussed having the alternative view towards the sons of God, daughters of, of men, and he actually said, I'm an outlier here amongst our Reformed brethren because he took the... The angels' view, the that angels it's view. angels interbreeding yeah. with so, women, human um, women. I'd like to know what are the best arguments for the Sethite? <laughs> well, and I would say... Uh, yeah, the question is raised about that passage in Genesis that speaks <clears throat> about the sons of God going into the daughters of men. There's apparently some sexual relations that lead to the birth of a... Of a of a generation of people that uh, leads ultimately to the flood, leads ultimately to violence perpetuating upon the earth. And there's basically two major viewpoints that have been held in the history of the church. One is that sons of God refer to angels, because in some passages of scripture, angels are called sons of God. Uh, Job chapter 1 speaks of the sons of God coming and um, Satan being among them. But, so the, that view would say, well, you have these uh, people that are termed giants, you have these people that engage in violence and bring about a set of circumstances in which the, uh, the flood comes because of the evil and wickedness that's in the earth. And so that would be the argument there because of the presence of those that are... Um, the Nephilim that are spoken of in verse 4, the Nephilim in verse 5. However, in other places, Nephilim do not refer to, to angels or something that is, it's human beings who are of great proportions. And 
this is in Genesis chapter 6, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 6. This is the, this is the prelude to the flood. This is the opening to the conditions that brought the, the flood in Noah's day. And um, again, the, the, the passage in dispute is, it says that when, the, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. To me, that's the first key issue, is you're talking about human propagation. You're talking about the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is what God commanded them to do, and this is what does seem to be going on here, is that uh, you would think that when man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were, bor- were born to them, you would think of Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So that would be the first thing. Sons of God, again, is an expression that can refer to angels in Job 1, and, and I don't think many other places, though. I don't just, don't, again, the whole idea of a son of God would be an image, would be an image. Uh, we have children in our image and likeness. Uh, they reflect our own uh, appearance many times. They look like parents. They act like their parents many times. Uh, these are imitative creatures, and, we're, and that's what images do. Images imitate. Images uh, uh, represent the thing it's an image of. And man is to image God and um, as a son. And so I think implied in the narrative in Genesis 1 is that Adam is a created son because he's a created image. Uh, I think Paul says in Ephesians 5 and verse 2, be imitators of God as beloved children. Children imitate their parents. Um, and so you'd be imitators of God because you're beloved children. And so sons and image are, are really, you know, akin to one another. It's, it's part of our identity uh, as creatures of God made in his image and likeness. We are his sons and his daughters. So again, I think that the natural reading would, would be from Genesis 1, the man, kind, uh, are sons of God. But another thing about sons of God is the whole question after the fall is that Son of God, that's a created Son, an accurate image of God? Is he representing God accurately and truly? And after, after the fall, man still retains his, his identity, his image of God, but in a way that was not originally designed. It was not an accurate image any longer. You know, I use the example oftentimes of the funhouse mirrors, where you go and you look into the funhouse mirrors, and what do you see? You see distortion, don't you? You see, maybe your, your neck is like that, and your waist is like that, and, or maybe narrow like that. It's an image, you say, well, yeah, it's me, but it's not an accurate image. It's not an accurate image. And part of what God designed in our creation is that we should properly, accurately image him. So you look at man and say, well, yeah, that's, that's God's creation made in his image and likeness, and he is accurately imaging who God is. In, in truth and in justice and in righteousness and in, in love and all the other attributes bound up in God are seen in man, his image. It's an accurate, the question of accuracy of image. And, and so what you have in the earlier part of Genesis is you have um, those who call upon the name of the Lord and those who do not. You have a uh, line of people who emanate from Seth, who it says in verse... Um, 26 of Genesis 4 let's see uh, after, after Cain kills Abel we read and you know the, the implication is you know they didn't go 20-25 years without other children other children were born to them but here in the place of Cain and Abel I'm sorry in whom all the expectations were he says that Adam knew his wife again she bore a son and called his name Seth for she says God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him Again, uh, firstborn son. Uh, um, I'm sorry, actually he was the secondborn son, but he was the one in whom apparently her hopes were were founded, maybe because she understood Cain's Cainly nature. Maybe she saw an Abel in the image of of a righteous believer. I I don't know. But uh, she does see the replacement in Seth is significant. uh, And then to Seth was born a son. His his name was called Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so there was some kind of an engagement of prayer and and worship, of calling upon God's name, that was really focused upon uh, the reality of God's own promise. 
uh, to be a god to the seed of the woman the seed of the woman that uh, would be in enmity with the seed of the serpent and ultimately there would be one who would bruise the serpent's head so there would be some desire for the fulfillment of that God's promise that led them to come together again in the midst of a, of a calloused, heartless difficult, fallen world you have a remnant of, of, of believers you have those who call upon the name of the Lord and of course you see as a result of the Cainites uh, the fact that Cain kills his brother and we find that he's cast out from the from uh, from 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 the presence of the Lord. Um, God says in verse ten to Cain, um, "What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Now you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth." He's going to find that it, uh, just do, attempting to do the work as, uh, as a farmer that he formerly did just doesn't seem to avail much in the way of uh, a benefit. The earth is not yielding its increase because there's an additional curse upon the earth that Cain farms that's in addition to the curse that was upon the earth because of Adam's sin. So there's added difficulty because of uh, Cain's murder of his brother. And so the result of it is, you can't be a farmer, you're going to be a nomad, you're going to go from place to place perhaps, you'll be a fugitive, a wanderer on the earth, you'll be looking maybe for sources of water, be looking for sources of food uh, that you're not going to get because you can't farm, because uh, God says the earth is no longer going to yield to its strength. And so God says, behold, you've driven me away today from the ground and from your face, I shall be hidden. So this is away from the presence of God, away from the face of God. I will be wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. That's the danger. I'm out there. So God provides a mark. That we don't know what that is, but there's some kind of identifying feature that preserved Cain's life from those that would kill him. And then it says in verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Again, you read the book of Genesis and you see every point in which there is sin that leads to judgment, you're moving away from the presence of the Lord and you're moving east. It's always an eastward traveling direction. And again, I think that's because uh, the gates of Eden were uh, facing west. (laughs) And so you entered Eden from the west, there's the gates of Eden, you come in from the west and you're in the garden. You're in the garden that God planted for the man. And then it was the Garden of Eden. And Eden was the place attached to the garden in which God dwelt. <laughs> and that's a very similar feature to how you see the temples and the tabernacles that uh, God ordained to be constructed in Israel. Is that the approach was always from the east. You came in through the eastern gates into the temple. Then you came into the courtyard and then you came into the um, holy place where the priests came and did their work and then you had the holy of holies but now you're moving away west, uh, I'm sorry eastward is away from the presence of the Lord and that's really the picture the picture is that sin separates from God sin brings alienation away from the presence of the Lord and so what happens when, he's, when Cain goes east, when he goes into Nod, when he builds a city um, that he names after his son Enoch in verse uh, 17? I don't know, comment on the city? Maybe, I don't know. Some people say, well, cities are all bad. But again, God made Jerusalem to be a city of his own dwelling place, the city of God. And so not all cities are bad, but there was a city named after his son Enoch, and no, no tribute given to the Lord in that. And then you have a, a, a descendants that come from Cain, and they all have accomplishments. They all have gifts. They all have um, uh, really a, a sort of parentage over a certain uh, uh, thing in life. Uh, the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. There's a kind of like nomadic people that go around with their their herds and their sh- and their sheep from place to place, I guess, looking for water and such. Um, and so uh, that was Ada. He, uh, that was Jabel. I'm sorry, the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. He's like the first one to figure out this is a fairly decent way to live in the Middle East, <laughs> and so he began to do it. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of those who play the lyre in the pipe. Oh, well, okay, music. Music is a pretty good thing. People enjoy it. It's settling to the nerves. It's something that moves the emotions. And so somebody figured out ways to make instruments, construct music, blow on a pipe, and play a lyre. 
Zillabor Tubalcane, he's the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. So he came about uh, understanding these elements in the earth that can be used for the purposes of tools and, and, and weapons and things like that. And so, um, the one thing you don't see in the Cainites, in this, this descendancy, is any sense of the divine presence or the need for God. There's no calling upon the name of the Lord among these people. You say they're, they're secular people who have attained giftedness and expertise in all of these different areas of human life and existence. And that's all well and good. I mean, you don't despise those things. You don't say, well, because the Canaanites went about as nomads, no one could ever do it properly because Abraham did. You can't say that music is uh, is of the devil because the Canaanites were the ones that created it. Because the David was the sweet psalm singer of in Israel. You can't say that uh, you can't use tools and weaponry for constructive, positive purposes because again, it's done all the time in Israel. But yet, the abs- what's absent is the fear of God. What's absent is calling upon the name of the Lord. Uh, Tim. I just want to ask that those gifts, in a sense, that they were gifted with, yeah. those are, you know, are they're a result of of being an image bearer of God, also. Yeah. Yeah, again, because the image of God were still created in his image. It's just not an accurate image. You see that in chapter 9, after the flood, uh, when God says, Whoso sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, because he's in the image of God. Man is image of God still. James chapter 3, I think, says you're not to, you're not to bless God and then curse man made in his image and likeness. So man is still image. It's just a question of the accuracy of the image. And apart from the new creation and to the likeness of Christ, the, the image is not accurate. The image is a distortion. So, but yeah, it's part of man's nature to. Uh, oh, it's, it's part of also the the commission to um, um, to multi- to uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. It's part of the subduing of the earth that you learn the property of the earth. You learn that certain metals can be used for certain purposes. Things you find in the earth can actually be uh, fashioned into implements to make life easier. It's learning the, the earth that God has made and learning how to use it properly. So I think it's part of uh, God's commission to man that they were doing these things. So, yeah, I think it's all bound up in it. But the, the point is the absence of the fear of God. And so, basically, and it ends up with a generation, I think seven down, maybe, I don't know, I think it's seven down from Cain, but Lamech, this guy who not only does evil, but boasts in it. He boasts in his evil. You want to, you want to see Nephilim? Look at this guy. Totally violent and doesn't care. And he'll do what he wants and he doesn't care. He'll act the way he chooses and he doesn't care. Uh, he said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, this is in verse 23, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Now it could be in poetry, this is a repetition of the same thing. So, or he could have killed two men. That Some people take one view or the other. I'm not sure which one's right. But um, he's boasting in it. And then he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, and who will take Cain's life, then Lamech is 77-fold. I'm greater than my father. I'm a greater killer than my father. I'm a greater uh, evil man than my father. My father had one wife, I have two. Did whatever he wanted. I think that's the, the picture of uh, a giant that's in the earth, a, a Nephilim, unprincipled, to do anything we use this, thinks that uh, everything is reducible to, to power, his own power, his own ability to do whatever he wants, to get whatever he wills. Uh, and so I think when you have a, 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 a line of people that are calling upon the name of the Lord, a line of people that are just absolutely indifferent to the Lord, they're wicked, self-centered, they do what they want, and they don't, they don't believe in consequences. They don't, they're not even concerned about consequences. Um, and then you have a scene where multiplication on the earth begins or continues and uh, you have um, some, some group of people called sons of God. Uh, I rather think you're, you're looking there at the accurate image bearers of the Lord. That would seem to be more sensible that the sons of God would be those who worship the Lord. They would be those who called upon the name of the Lord. They would be the sons of Seth. But something happens to these sons of God. They had good nurture. They had good teaching. They were raised in a religious environment. They, they, they called upon the name of the Lord. But uh, 
Well, they found a little bit of a stumbling block in the fact that they looked at the the daughters of men, and they're the daughters of men likely are just those who don't worship the Lord. They're daughters born to people who are not sons of God. I think that would be the understanding. So it would be the commingling of the line of Seth and the line of Cain. Or the line of those who worship the Lord and those who do not worship the Lord. I mean, marriage is a very important aspect to human life and activity. And the biblical rule is it's in the Lord. It's in the Lord. So if you grow up in a household and a family that worship the Lord, you would want to find a partner in life who worship the Lord. Unless you'd be, unless you'd be, late, uh, you'd be uh, going astray to, to worship false gods. Again, that's the stumbling block. That's the trap. That's the trap that Solomon fell before. That's the, fact, the trap that many fell before. And I think that's what ha- what's happening here. So I would say the whole context from creation and man's uh, uh, design in, cre- for, in creation to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, and that's what the language you have here in chapter 6. Uh, I think you're seeing human propagation. And I think you're seeing human propagation that... Uh, is now commingling righteous and ungodly people uh, and, and forming unions that give way to uh, lame kind of guys and, and girls, unprincipled people. And I think that's what led to the violence that are happening in the earth and that's what led to these giants in the earth and the greatness of the wickedness of men um, that was great in the earth and that led to the flood. So I would say that the context of Genesis is all in that direction. Again, it's using language that is, you know, nephilim. It's not really defined, is it? Uh, So you read into what you want. You can read, you know, nine-foot giants, (laughs) sons of God. It's not defined, except in the light of the context, which I believe, what talks about image bearers, sons of God is not an inappropriate thing to call them, those who call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, again, is it often used? No, but it is used. It is used. Um, and then the other thing on the part of uh, the, the, the opposite view, that these are angels. And again, I know lots of Reformed people that hold to this. Um, so even though I think the majority of Reformed theologians who are in print favor the traditional view that it's the commingling of Sethites and Cainites, there are a number of people that are now writing books on this other point of view. And also, in a lot of modern scholarship, that view is held as well. A number of modern scholars in the book of uh, Genesis. I don't know what Bruce Waltke holds on it. He'd be an interesting guy to read and see what he says. But uh, I haven't done all the reading that could be done on this passage. But uh, I do believe the other factor that militates against the view of angels is the fact that when... uh, when um, Jesus speaks about the, the resurrection um, in chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel, uh, he makes a statement about angels with reference to this whole question of reproduction. Are angels capable of impregnating women? <laughs> well, they doesn't seem like they're capable of impregnating other angels. So th- there's not an increase in the number of angels. Um, I don't know where, you know, f- they're spirit beings. Where they got the physical properties to go about impregnating angels, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's kind of left unexplained. But, um, but Jesus' statement in, in Matthew about the resurrection, um, remember that whole question that was given about uh, liberate marriages, where if, uh, if uh, a man dies, it's the responsibility of the next in line. The kinsman redeemer, the Geol, as it's called in the Old Testament, to raise up seed, raise up children to the dead uh, brother, uh, the dead man. And, and so this is a question of uh, a woman marries a, a, a man and has, he has uh, seven brothers or six brothers. And each of them die in turn. And in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus' answer to the question is simply... Uh, you know, you're making all kinds of strange assumptions about the reality of the age to come. You're making all kinds of strange assumptions about heavenly beings and their properties and such. And he answers and says, you're wrong because you, neither, you know, neither the scriptures nor the power of God. 
Uh, and again, if, you, if knowing the scriptures in the, uh, uh, indicates that Genesis 6 is a, is a teaching that says angels had ability to propagate, it would seem to me the argument would not be what Jesus is saying. If angels had the ability to propagate with human wives or, or uh, human women, this would not be uh, an argument that could properly be used. Jesus is asserting it's the scriptures that should lead you to this conclusion. The problem you have, Pharisees, is you need to know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, of course, he's speaking mostly about the scriptures' testimony to resurrection, the power of God for resurrection. But the argument that he goes on, he appeals to, is the scriptures. And he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, that is, human beings. Marriage is a state of life for this age. For this age. Not for the age to come. Uh, we fulfill the work of reproduction. We fulfill the work of being fruitful and multiplying, filling, filling the earth uh, in this age. In the age to come, there's no that work's done. That work is over. There'll be new work to do, new things to do. But that particular work is not for the age to come. And so, in the resurrection, in the age to come, they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There's a likeness to the angels in heaven. God made a certain number of angels. There's no testimony in scripture that they are little angel babies. You know, great big ferocious seraphs don't give birth to little cherubim. We call them cherubim because we use the word cherub in an unbiblical sense. The cherubs were guardians. The cherubs were frightening. The cherubs held swords that turned every which way, yeah, pr- protecting the way to the, to the tree of life. Um, the picture of cherubs in scripture, you wouldn't want to encounter one in the woods, you know, <laughs> or anywhere for that matter. But cherub came in amongst us, I think we'd all be pretty much spooked. But they're not little, little, little cherubs, and there are no little angel babies. I know it's an expression that people use for this thing or that thing, but there are no real angel babies in that sense. Um, and in the age to come, that will be, will be like the, the angels. A certain number of angels were created by God. Some fell, some maintained their first estate, as it says in the uh, first, second Peter and in, and, and, and in Jude. But uh, there will not be uh, reproduction. Uh, there's not reproduction among the angels. So if there are beings that don't reproduce, I don't see how that view is tenable. So that would be my argument. And then I'm, then I'm ready to listen, but that would be my argument for holding what I do. Both the, the, the text of Genesis, I think, overwhelmingly moves in that direction. And Jesus' word with respect to angel natures also, I think, move in that direction. And then I'd be interested to know what they say. So, who thought when they came to church this morning, the pastors were going to talk about whether angels could reproduce or not? <laughs> no, no one anticipated that this morning. <laughs> but we're surprised. So, are there, Is there any other surprises that will be held forth this morning by another question that somebody else will have? Let me open it up to you. We've got about 20 minutes. Well, we need to fill the 20 minutes with something. And what I was thinking of doing, if no one had any questions this morning, is I was going to give a little bit of a sense of where I've been in the weeks I've been away from you, uh, particularly in studies I've done in the book of Isaiah. Uh, We studied Isaiah in the evening service some some years ago. Some of you were there when we did those things. And I remember coming to the end of studying Isaiah saying, now that I can see the whole of the book, I really like to go back to the beginning and do it all over again. <laughs> because somehow when you get to the end of a book and you can look back on all the places you've been, the thing you see is interrelatedness and connections between passages that maybe you didn't see early on until you studied the latter part and you see how it all relates one with another. Anyway, that that's, is where I'm often at the end of book studies, is a growing appreciation of the unity of Scripture. And I see in the book of uh, Isaiah, tremendous amount of, of unity that takes place. 
And, and the unity can be divided up into different uh, things. Uh, I think when I studied it with you, it was mostly the unity that's around the theme of king and kingship. And that's a biggie in the book of Isaiah. The theme of kings and kingdom. Uh, in fact, a fellow by the name of, uh, I think it's Andy Abernathy, his, Abernethy, his name is, teaches out of Wheaton. Uh, he's one of the principal New, uh, Old Testament scholars, in, particularly in the book of Isaiah. He's written a couple of books. I think he's come up with an additional thing on the prophets just recently. But um, he wrote a book about uh, Isaiah on the theme of kingdom and king, uh, kings and kingdom uh, in the book of Isaiah. And it really is structured strongly in that direction. Um, you think of chapter 1 and verse 1. Begins with kings. I know other, chap- other prophets do the same. But Isaiah seems to execute this prologue, this first section, in, in a way that um, you really see how he's following up on this over and over and over again. Because we're told uh, in, in chapter 1 and verse 1 that this book is the vision of Isaiah, the things Isaiah saw. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw. Again, visions is something you see. Concerning Judah and Jerusalem, that's the city, and that's the, that's the uh, country the city is in, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So, really in the ballpark of just determining what Isaiah is doing, with reference to these four kings in Israel. Now, every one of them gets mentioned later on in the book. The only one that doesn't get mentioned is Jotham. Jotham had a brief reign, I think it was about six years. Although at the time um, uh, of Uzziah, he sort of had a co-regency. But remember, Uzziah, Uzziah was a king who reigned in Judah for 50 years. He had a really long reign. And um, we're told in the, in, the, in the year the king Uzziah died... Uh, Isaiah had a vision in chapter 6. But uh, during his lifetime, though he was a good king and brought great prosperity to Judah, um, he did something foolish and wicked in that he looked to get in, go into the temple and sacrifice on the altar of incense, uh, which the kings were not supposed to do. And God sent a prophet to rebuke him and then smote him with, uh, I think, some sort of a skin disease. It's called leprosy in the Bible. It's not quite the same as the thing called leprosy today, but nonetheless, it was a disease that did disqualify him from the temple and disqualified him from a lot of interactions with other people. And so Jotham came to be sort of like a co-king with him, even during his lifetime. But after his death, Jotham by himself only reigned for six years, and then Ahaz came to the throne. And Ahaz and Hezekiah, they play important roles in this book in chapter 7, and then in chapter 36 and, 30, 36 and 37. Um, actually, 38 and 39, Hezekiah is also a principal actor. Um, so these kings come into view in important points of the book. Um, Isaiah's death is mentioned in chapter 6, when Isaiah receives a vision, and he receives a vision that also is a vision of a king. So it's not only earthly kings that this book teaches us about. There's this heavenly king. Uh, In the year that King Uzziah died, this is in chapter 6 and verse 1, I saw the Lord, that's the name Adonai, the sovereign Lord, sitting upon a throne. That's a place of kingly rule. So there's a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. That's a you know, the temple of God, the house of God. And yet in the temple of God, there was a throne room. God was upon the throne. Um, the Holy of Holies, uh, the lid of the, uh, the, uh, the mercy seat, um, God was above it. God was above the mercy seat, between the cherubims. And he reigned in that, uh, with, with that special presence that's there in the Shekinah glory. And Isaiah sees something of a vision. I don't think it's the earthly tabernacle, no, the earthly temple. There are commentators that say that, that this is the earthly temple. But I think it's a heavenly scene he's looking at. Again, remember the book of Hebrews speaks about the tabernacle, which was an earthly tent, which is a copy and a pattern to the the true. There's a heavenly reality that corresponds to what that earthly sanctuary pictures. And I think it's that heavenly reality that Isaiah sees. He sees the God of heaven. He sees 
not an earthly space upon the earth where there was that special space in the temple, but it's really that transcendent space in heavenly glory. Our Father who art in heaven. Again, I'm going upward. It's not really upward. Again, it's just a question of that God's above and God's supreme and God's upon the throne. And um, that's what he sees. He sees this vision of, 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 of the enthroned one, of the God of heaven and earth. And so kings play a large part. And uh, I've done the book of Isaiah with reference to those kings, the story of the two kings. Remember Ahaz and Hezekiah? That both make an appearance by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. I got it right this time. I always have a problem remembering exactly how that goes. It's the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And that place was significant because it was the place where the water source was. That's where they went out to wash their clothes, hence the fuller's field. They went out to wash their clothes in the, in, in the water. But then it was, there was a conduit from that fuller's field where they washed water that brought water into the city. There was that conduit of the upper pool on the, high, on the way to the highway to the fuller's field. That's where Ahaz was as he's looking to protect the city from an invasion from the north, from the Ephraimites, northern kingdom, in league with the Syrians. And then you have another scene on the highway, on the, on the conduit of the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field, that you meet in chapter 36. And there, there, there's not a king of Israel that's there. It's the ar- invading army of the Assyrians. The invading army of the Assyrians. They've come right up to the neck of Jerusalem. As chapter 8 says they would, that they overflowed from the Euphrates, came right up to the neck of the city. And they're about to destroy it. They just came from the city of Lachish that's mentioned in chapter 36. They destroyed that city. And now they're all poised to destroy Jerusalem and the king that's in the city, Hezekiah. But what happened in the previous incident is that God sent the prophet to the king and said to the king, stop shaking like a leaf. You know, your heart's trembling and you're all filled with fear. You need to trust in your God. And of course, Ahaz had no concern to do that. He was already in league with the Assyrians, looking to become a vassal under Assyria's authority. He comes and he brings temples, designs back from the gods and the temples that he saw in Nineveh to bring it to the city in Jerusalem and to the temple of the Lord. He was a really bad king, <laughs> put it that way. And all of uh, Isaiah's ministry to him fell on deaf ears. And he made all kinds of excuses as to why he wouldn't even ask a sign of the Lord. When God says, ask a sign, high as heaven, deep as hell, ask what, ask what you will. And God will, will affirm that sign and he will strengthen your faith. And he says, I, won't want, I don't want to tempt the Lord. And God gets exasperated with him. And he says, I'm going to give you the sign. Then the real sign of the perpetuation of the Davidic monarchy is the sign of Emmanuel. It's the sign of the coming king. But where Ahaz fails, through his unbelief, and he enters into league with Assyria, God says, okay, the, the kings you're afraid of, I'm, they're not going to be around in, in a bit. But this, this, this nation that you're getting in league with, that's the real threat. And, and you're looking to become a vassal to them under their lordship rather than making God your lord rather than making Israel's true king your lord and so God says the result of your unbelief Ahaz is that trouble's going to meet the next generation and it did and that's where Assyria came right up to the neck of Jerusalem well, there's all kinds of things about what happened there we'll get into it but the point is the same place conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field that's where Ahaz was that's where Sennacherib, king of Assyria his armies are poised they're going to cut off the water source they're going to devastate the city and um, what happens well Isaiah is not sent to Hezekiah Hezekiah calls Ahaz to him and he lays out his concern and he praises him incredible prayer and Isaiah just says, well, God's going to do something that's going to bring about the deliverance, and he does. Destroys the Assyrian army. Jerusalem is delivered. Why? Because of faith. Faith in the, faith, in, in the part of a faithful king brings the deliverance of the city. The unbelief of the unfaithful king brings the, brings the curse. It brings destruction. So you really have the story of the two kings there. In chapter 7, chapter 36 and 37. 
It's just an incredible way that Isaiah puts all this stuff together. And then he teaches all these lessons about how do, you, how, do you, how do you not be an Ahaz and how do you become a Hezekiah? In other words, how do you not be a person of unbelief and skepticism and be a man, a woman, boy or girl of faith? And all these lessons are taught in the middle between these two accounts. And then there's the king of, Assyria, of, of, of Persia, that's in chapters 43 and 45. So you have the story of kings throughout all these sections and then, of course, there is the coming Davidic king, who is Jesus. So you can tell the story of Isaiah through using kings. Also, you can tell the story through cities, that God's concerned to protect his city. There is a city of God. Um, there's a river that makes glad the city of God. There is the blessings that come to the city. There's a story of how the unfaithful city becomes a faithful city. And, and it's how the city that is a Jewish city primarily becomes a universal city becomes a city that all the nations come to in chapter 2. It becomes a city that ultimately merges into a new heavens and new earth in chapters 65 and 66. So you tell the story in terms of the city. But then there's another way you can tell the story, and I, I tried to do a little bit of that, and I'll do a little bit of that this morning in the morning worship. It's how the story can be told in terms of the invasions. There's invasions in, in, into Judah. There's the invasion of... Um, Judah on the part of the Ephraimites and the Syrians and league together. They're out to, you see, the big threat of that time in the 8th century when Isaiah lived and ministered in Jerusalem, the big threat were the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the great empire growing and taking up everything in its path. And they were brutal people. They were people that when they conquered one area, they had a policy of repopulation. They take you out of your homes, they take you out of your land, off of your land, they take you out of your community, and they send you out to some other place you've never been before. And um, they said, okay, you, you're going to be part of that, that conquered people. And so it's total dislocation to live as, as, a, as a, not just an immigrant, but to live as a, exiles, to live as, uh, what's the word, that when somebody's, has to leave a place because of danger, a refugee. Refugee, I guess that's the word I'm thinking of. He had to live like a refugee. It's like a horrific existence under the Assyrians. And, uh, but Ahaz is just thinking of his own skin. Um, and what, uh, Jude, and what uh, Ephraim and Syria, they're in the path of the Assyrians coming from Nineveh, they're thinking, well, if we enter into an alliance with each other, that's the northern kingdom of Israel, entering into an alliance with, it's called in the Bible Syria, the actual name is Aram. You know how the Jews spoke the Aramaic language? It comes from Aram, Aram language of, of, of Syria, that came to be the language of Palestine in later years. But you have this alliance between these two forces, and now they want Judah to join that. And Ahaz says no. I'm throwing my lot in with the conquering Assyrians. And so they're looking to topple him. That's what they're after. And so that's the first threat. The first threat you meet in chapter 7 is an invasion from the north on the part of the northern kingdom of Israel in league with the Syrians. And then you have the other threat that's coming from the other direction of the Assyrians that you see in chapter 36 and 37. That's another invasion. And then you have Finally, at the end of chapter 39 of the book of Isaiah, and really chapter 1 to 39 is the stuff that covers the whole span of time that Isaiah of Jerusalem lived and ministered. Um, again, the period from death of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. But that's not all the book talks about. <laughs> it doesn't just talk about the stuff that happened in Isaiah's own lifetime. That's all the stuff that happened in his lifetime. Those are the pa- those passages, chapter 7, 8, chapters 36, 37, 38, 39, all have Isaiah living and breathing, talking to kings, bringing God's word to these kings. And then when you hit chapter 40, I mean, there's many of the sections he's not mentioned either. Just prophecies are given. And sometimes prophecies of nations that aren't even on the map. Like like Babylon, for instance, comes into play. 
and some of the things that Moab did. And it all comes at a later period of time. So Isaiah deals with later periods of time and how that's done. I'm not going to get into it, only the book deals with it. The book of Isaiah deals with those later periods of time. And in those later periods of time, other empires come to come into existence and it affects the people of Judah. But back in 39, which ends the point of Isaiah of Jerusalem's uh, ministry, uh, actually, the tradition was that Isaiah died not even in the reign of Hezekiah. He existed, he, he lived still after Hezekiah's death. It was in the reign of Hezekiah's son Manasseh, who was an awful king. The legend is, or the report is, or the story is, whether you give it credence or not, that when the Hebrews 11 says some were sawn in two, <laughs> that's Isaiah. Isaiah was sawn in two. The story was that Hezekiah put him into a log of wood and then cut the log in two, sawn his body in two, and that's how <clears throat> Isaiah met his demise. Whether that's true or not, <clears throat> the last incident we read about is in the days of Hezekiah. And the last incident in the days of Hezekiah, you have the rescue from the Assyrian invasion in 36-37. You have Hezekiah's sickness and recovery that does involve Isaiah in chapter 38. Then you have another incident that comes about after he's recovered from his illness, when envoys from Babylon are received into into Judah, into Jerusalem, in chapter 39. And uh, again, Babylon was not the great power at this time, but they would be. They would be. But Hezekiah thinks, hey, you know, I'll show them around. I'll give them the key to the city. Let them see everything we have here. That's what he, that's what he does. Verse 2 of chapter 39, Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. He showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in the storehouses. There was nothing in his house and all of his realm that Hezekiah didn't show them. He was giving them the, the cook's tour. He was giving them the full, the full uh, tour of the city. And then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. What's the big deal? What's Babylon? No threat to me. What what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in all my storehouses. They did not show it to them. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And some of your own sons will come from you, whom you will father shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the kings of Babylon. That's coming. And you know what? You showed them where everything was. What kind of a dope are you, Hezekiah? (laughs) You opened the city. You showed them exactly where to go to get the treasures and everything that they wanted. And that's going to happen. And then you see the response of this king who was primarily a faithful king. He was a man of faith. His faith, his prayers, averted the disaster of the Assyrians. But his foolishness and his pride and his egocentrism that welcomed these envoys from Babylon and showed them everything, that's going to lead to their demise. That's going to lead to their demise. So, it's a good king, but not the true king, not the great king, not the ultimate king, not the king of kings by any means, a fallible king, and not only is he fallible in that he was foolishly opening the city to those who would ultimately take away all of these treasures but then he responds to Isaiah's words in verse 38 uh, verse 8 of chapter 39 says the word of, the, of Yahweh that you've spoken is what? good? good? This is a good word that has, Isaiah has spoken. And we're told why he thought it was good. He, he said, there will be peace and security in my days. Oh, man. I mean, I think Hezekiah lost his way a bit. <laughs> Not only in the egocentrism that opened up the city to these envoys, that would ultimately lead to the taking away of the city and its people and its treasures, but he doesn't seem to be concerned about the city as much as about himself. 
There'll be peace and security in my days. I won't have to face these things. I'll be long gone. I don't know which of the, one of the presidents was reported to have said when asked by someone who was interviewing him, what do you expect your legacy will be? His response is, he didn't care because he's going to be dead. He didn't care about his legacy. Not a very good answer, I think, for a president who should be concerned about the people that he presides over. As a president, Hezekiah should have been concerned about the people whom he was the shepherd of and led. But he wasn't concerned at all. He responded in this calloused, careless, unconcerned way. There'll be peace and security in my days. I believe you with that because that's where our morning service, service is going to begin. Because, you know, you see the contrast between the callousness of Isaiah, of, I'm sorry, of Hezekiah, and the comfort of the Lord in chapter 40. <laughs> comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now God's concerned to not be callous, but to be comforting to a people who were judged for their sins through the Babylonian captivity. But now God's going to come with the promises of a new redemption, of a new salvation, of a new exodus. That's key to the things that follow. So it gives you a sense of at least the book of Isaiah and its breadth, some of its issues. Concerned with kings and kingdoms, it's concerned with the city, Zion's city of our God, in its unfaithfulness, but yet future faithfulness. Not just faithfulness as a Jewish city, but a city for the nations, and a city that ultimately will give rise to a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. And it's a book that deals with invasions and how God meets his people in the midst of these invasions and ultimately is concerned to bring about an invasion of his own. An invasion of his own in the person of the Messiah. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for this time we can consider your word and its importance. It's its significance and importance. And Lord, we've dealt with things that are of great importance and significance that are repeated again and again and again. And, and even we've dealt with some troubling passages that can, believers have understood in different ways. But Lord, all this is helpful to get a better sense of your purposes in, in, in the world with humanity as your creatures made in your image and likeness and your ultimate purposes for, for good to be brought about in the world through our Lord Jesus coming and doing and dying what was needed to bring about so great a salvation. And so we're thankful we can address some of these things this morning and pray that your blessing would be with us now as we greet one another in the morning hour. We pray that you would bless our fellowship with each other and bless us as we enter into the morning hour of worship as we ask for these mercies, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.